Hello. The video you're about to watch is an exposition of Psalm 43, uh, delivered under restrictions due to the COVID-19 problem uh, to a live audience. However, before the recording started, I had earlier in the service read the psalm and made a few comments about it. And those items, therefore, are not on the recording that follows. So I'm going to repeat them here and now in this brief introduction. The psalm doesn't tell us who wrote it or on what occasion. But a reading of the historical books, Second Samuel, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, uh, very quickly shows us, I think, that this psalm was written by King David during the time of his exile from Jerusalem as a consequence of the rebellion by Absalom, his second son. Absalom had persuaded the Jewish nation, had deceived the Jewish nation uh, into thinking that he would make a better king than David. And uh, hence we have in verse one, comments about an ungodly nation, refers to the nation of Israel over which David reigned and the deceitful and unjust man, which almost certainly was a reference to Absalom. Let me read the psalm and then we'll watch the video. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God to guard my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, and my God. So now let's proceed to the uh, showing of the actual recording of the exposition of this psalm. Well, we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 43, and, and uh, it will help, I think, if you turn to it in your Bible, if you have one in front of you. Uh, we're going to look at it under three headings. Um, first of all, David's protest in the first two verses. Secondly, David's prayer 
in verse 3. And then finally David's possession in verses 4 and 5. First of all, David's protest. Now to some extent we've covered this already in the children's uh, talk, such as it was. Uh, but I just want to point out one or two other things in those first two verses. In the opening verse, David calls upon God to vindicate him or defend his cause. David is asking God for justice. I want justice, he says, against these ungodly people and against this, this uh, deceitful enemy. I want justice. Give me justice. We're going to see presently that it's not justice that David needs. It's mercy and grace. But it takes him a little while coming round to that idea. He's crying out for justice. Give me justice. What he seems to forget is that uh, about five or seven years earlier, he committed a terrible sin. He took another man's wife and then he arranged for her husband to be killed in battle so that he should have this lady Bathsheba for himself. And you know, if God had showed him justice at that point, David would have been executed. But God showed him mercy. Showed him mercy. Showed him grace. <clears throat> God forgave him his sin. And because of that, David was able to become king over Israel. Now, the book of Hebrews puts this very well in, in um, <clears throat> uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. This high priest does not, it is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace, you see, are very closely related because they are both things that we do not deserve. They are God's goodness, God's kindness to us when we don't deserve it. So grace and mercy are really the same thing. And that's what David needed. He didn't need justice in this situation. He needed the grace and the mercy of God. And when he realized that, his attitude changes completely. But before we leave it, how does that affect us? Are we saying life isn't fair? I, I want justice from God. I want, I want God to, to do the right thing by me. I want God to help me. 
want God to do this, I want God to do that. And we are, in a sense, demanding justice from God. But, you know, we are all sinners. We haven't sinned like David sinned, perhaps, but we are nevertheless all sinners. And sinners need mercy. And sinners need grace. We need something we don't deserve from God. We need his grace and his mercy, his saving grace, to change our sinful hearts, uh, to take away our sin, to forgive us our sin, and to draw us near to himself. That only happens when God shows us grace and mercy. And David wakes up to this fact in verse 3. And now he prays, he prays a prayer, and I've called this section David's Prayer. Not David's protest, but David's prayer. Well, now you say, well, David made a prayer right at the beginning of the, of the psalm. Vindicate me, O God, and support my cause. But you see, he was demanding justice at that point. And God wouldn't answer that prayer. God wouldn't show him justice. God was waiting for David to ask for the right thing. There's the wrong kind of prayer, you see. A uh, long time ago, <clears throat> some of the grown-ups will remember the uh, uh, railways, the British Rail, uh, couldn't run their diesel-electric trains because it had snowed and they said well it was the wrong kind of snow and it stopped the trains running. It's become a kind of byword, the wrong kind of snow. Well we can pray the wrong kind of prayer and James in his uh, epistle uh, says this, he says you have not because you do not ask in other words you don't pray for things and therefore you don't get God's answers to the prayer, because there isn't a prayer to answer. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask for the wrong things. And so David is learning, and has learned by verse 3, that he has to ask not for justice, but for mercy and for grace to help in time of need. That is the statement we got from Hebrews chapter 4. And he says, in a different kind of prayer, the right kind of prayer, in verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. He's asking God to send out God's light and God's truth. And and when he says send out, he's not talking about sending it out there, as we might say if we were talking about evangelism or missionary work. We want God's light and his truth to go out to the whole world. Yes, that is something we want. But David is talking about himself here. Because he says, let them lead me. 
And when he says sent out, he's talking about something coming from the very heart and person of God. He wants God to send out from God's own heart, from God's own power, from God's own grace and mercy. He wants God to send light and truth to him, David, personally. What are they? What is he asking for? What are what are light and truth? Well, some commentators are somewhat reluctant to identify light and truth, but I, I have no hesitation in saying, and we'll take truth first, that truth is the word of God. The Bible. Truth, God's truth. Send out your truth, as David says, God's truth is God's word, the scriptures. And, and I'm just going to give you one verse <coughs> to prove that. Uh, in John chapter 17 and, and verse 17, makes it easy to remember, uh, or in verse 16 I'll start. <coughs> he says he's praying to God, for his, uh, to his father, for his disciples. And he says, they are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And by the word uh, sanctify, he means <coughs> set them apart. And when that word is used in the Bible, it's normally refers to something being set apart for the glory and use of God. You know, the, the vessels in the, in the tabernacle were sanctified. <coughs> they were ordinary plates and spoons and bowls and things. But they were set aside specially for the worship and service of God. They were set apart for that purpose. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants his disciples, and that applies to every one of us who trusts in Christ. He wants his disciples to be set apart. Set apart from this sinful world. Set apart from the, the thoughts and the ideas and the ambitions and the, and, and the, the, the sins of this world. He wants us to be set apart from that. And how's that going to happen? By your truth. And then he clarifies even that by saying, your word is truth. So when David <coughs> cries out, and David understood these things, he, he understood uh, that Christ would come, and he was taught by the Spirit of God himself, he understood that God's grace and mercy were going to come to him through the word of God. Now, David didn't have the whole Bible like we have. He had quite a large part of the Old Testament. 
but it was still the word of God. And he wanted God to send forth from the very heart of God into his heart and mind that truth which would be the conveyor to him of God's mercy and grace. I wonder if we have that same attitude towards the Bible. How, how do you think about the Bible? We need to think of it the way David thinks of it, as something that comes from God, from the heart and mind of God into our hearts and minds, and is the conveyor of grace and mercy to us. It brings us the gospel. It brings us Christ. It brings us a knowledge and understanding of God and his ways. So David saw, first of all, that if he was going to have mercy <clears throat> and grace from God, he needed God to send the scriptures to him. He needed to know the scriptures, to read the scriptures, to study the scriptures, to understand the scriptures. I hope that's why you come to church, because we spend time like this trying to understand the scriptures. <clears throat> but the Bible on its own is not enough. Send forth your light and your truth. And again, I have no hesitation in saying that the light referred to here is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, whose work it is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by taking the things that belong to Christ, that pertain to Christ, that refer to Christ, and showing them to us. John chapter 14, I think. Uh, he, he, says, um, he, he, he says that we need the things of God which are written in the scriptures, revealed in the scriptures. He needs uh, those things sent into his heart by the Holy Spirit. He wants the Holy Spirit to take these great truths that are written in Scripture and make them real and felt and powerful in his own heart and life. So we have the Spirit and the Word, the light and the truth. And all believers have access to those things. Uh, the unbeliever, well, to him the things of the Spirit of God uh, don't make any sense. Uh, he cannot understand them. He can't comprehend them. She can understand them either. The things of God have to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. But he does through that through the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the scriptures. Well then, if we have the light and the truth of God, have we arrived? Have we, have we got there? Where we want to go? Well, <clears throat> not according to our psalm. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. See, David wants the light and the truth of God 
to lead him somewhere. And he goes on, he says, uh, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling or tabernacle. Uh, David's on a journey here. Well, he's going on a journey, he's going on a pilgrimage, if, if I can use that word. We don't often use it in our circles. <clears throat> but he's going on a pilgrimage. And the light and the truth of God, the spirit and the word, are going to enable him to do that, to undertake this pilgrimage. Uh, well, where, where, where is he going? What is his destination? Where does he want the spirit and the word to take him, to lead him? Where's he going? Well, he says, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Well now, <clears throat> we've got to understand that this pilgrimage that David is talking about is a spiritual pilgrimage and not a physical one. Now we can get confused because uh, devout Jews in the days of David and at other times and even in the times of the Lord Jesus Christ when it was the temple they went to, they went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the great feasts Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost and so on, uh, they, they were obliged in a sense by their religion to go up to Jerusalem to, to glorify God, to praise God, to worship God at these feasts. And there are several other feasts during the Jewish year. And they would go, literally they would go up because Jerusalem was built on, on seven hills and they were in the mountain country. And so to get to Jerusalem, you had to go up. And these pilgrims would, would go up. Uh, in fact, there are quite a number of psalms called Songs of Ascent, Songs of Going Up. And they were sung by the pilgrims as they went up in, in groups, perhaps, uh, not so much singly, but together they went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the great feasts. Now that was a physical thing, it was a physical pilgrimage. People actually climbed hills and arrived at Jerusalem. But there are several reasons why the pilgrimage that the psalm is talking about is not a physical pilgrimage, although it illustrates, David illustrates it by a physical pilgrimage going up to Mount Zion, um, the holy hill, uh, he's illustrating his spiritual pilgrimage by reference to physical pilgrimage. But we mustn't confuse the two. There are several reasons why we know that this pilgrimage is a spiritual one. This journey is a spiritual one. First of all, of course, David was in exile. He couldn't make a physical pilgrimage to uh, to Mount Zion, the holy hill of God in Jerusalem because uh, he wasn't in Jerusalem, he was out there in the wilderness and if he tried to come into Jerusalem he would have been killed by Absalom and his followers <coughs> so 
So David couldn't do this. So why is he asking God to, to lead him in this journey? Because the journey is a spiritual journey, not a physical one. He doesn't have to be in Jerusalem to make this pilgrimage. That's the first reason. Uh, secondly, David had been king on the throne in Jerusalem for something like 23 years when he wrote this. And um, he didn't need anyone to lead him to Zion. The holy hill was uh, Mount Zion. It's not called Zion in the psalm, but by general consent, uh, everyone knows that the holy hill in Jerusalem was a, a, a mount, a hill called Mount Zion. It was the highest point in Jerusalem, sometimes known as the city of David because David made his headquarters there. David knew where it was. He didn't need anybody or anything to lead him there, did he? He could have gone up there and, and, and located the hill with his eyes closed. So we know that it's a spiritual pilgrimage. And then finally, of course, we know it's a spiritual pilgrimage because the things that are going to lead him through that journey are spiritual things. The truth of God, the word of God, and the spirit of God. Now, this is important, you see, because we can make that same journey, that same pilgrimage. We can pray the same prayer. We can ask God to send forth his light and his truth, his spirit, his Holy Spirit and his word to lead us to our desired destination. Because it is a spiritual pilgrimage, it is one that we can and indeed we should undertake. Well now, <clears throat> what was the destination? What was the point that David wanted to reach in this spiritual pilgrimage? Well, he says, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now, uh, here's where I quarrel with the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, which we use as a, as a church. Because uh, older versions translate that word, the Hebrew word there, not dwelling, but tabernacle. And indeed, the ESV translates it tabernacle, exactly the same word, uh, most of the places that it occurs in the Bible. It, it, it's a, a, a peculiarity of biblical Hebrew that it had a very small vocabulary, a very small number of words compared with English, say. And so one word often had to serve several different purposes. One word frequently had several different meanings, usually related, closely related meanings, and that is true here. Uh, the word used here basically means a tent. And then, of course, because people lived in tents, 
uh, it became a, a dwelling, dwelling place. So it's used as a dwelling place. Uh, but then because the tabernacle that Moses constructed at God's instruction in the wilderness after the Israelites came out of Egypt, that tabernacle designed not by Moses but designed by God but uh, implemented by, by Moses and his helpers, that tabernacle was a tent. It was a tent and it was a, a, a mobile church, if you like, a mobile temple. Because it could be taken apart and carried to the next place. And as the uh, Israelites wandered in the wilderness uh, for uh, 40 years, they carried the tabernacle around with them. And whenever they camped, they erected the tabernacle and used it as their focus of worship. And that tabernacle represented the presence of God among his people. That was the meeting place where they met with God. And so I think this ought to be translated tabernacle. However, you say, well, they must have heard, the translators must have had a reason for calling it a dwelling, not identifying it as the tabernacle. And there's a very good reason why they should do that, because at that time, and not a lot of people know this, as they say, there were two tabernacles in existence. The original <coughs> tabernacle of Moses was still in existence, and it was located at a place called Gibeon, which is about four miles five miles north of Jerusalem. And there the original tabernacle of Moses and the altar, uh, the altar of burnt offerings that was in that tabernacle uh, and possibly other furniture from the tabernacle but we're not told that, they were located in Gibeon. And if you want to Check me out on that. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 29. So, you see, there were two tabernacles because David, early in his reign, had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, had taken it to Mount Zion, the holy hill. In fact, this is what made Mount Zion a holy hill. It was it was not holy in itself. It was, it was because the, tabo, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept there. And David put up a tent to accommodate it. It was David's tent. It was a tabernacle for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, so perhaps, I don't know, I haven't asked them, but perhaps the translators thought that, well, you can't have two tabernacles. <coughs> the real tabernacle was at Gibeon. So we can't call this one a tabernacle in Jerusalem. And, and incidentally, the, in, in the Hebrew here, when he says, bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle, the word is plural. Tabernacles. 
And if you read the commentators, you'll find they try all sorts of ways to explain why that should be a plural word. Well, uh, my explanation would be there were two tabernacles. They weren't in the same place, but because this was a spiritual pilgrimage, David could imagine himself coming to both of them. A united tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant and the remaining part of the tabernacle were united in his spiritual quest. So he was seeking. This was the destination he was seeking. It was the tabernacle. Now, what's so wonderful about the tabernacle? Well, the answer is very simple. The tabernacle represented throughout the Old Testament times, the tabernacle represented Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And let me just demonstrate that in taking you on a tour of the tabernacle. When you came to the tabernacle in the wilderness, <clears throat> uh, you would enter the outer courtyard, which was uh, curtained off. Large courtyard, open air courtyard, had a gate. And the first thing you would come across when you went through that gate into the courtyard was the altar of burnt offering. And that, you see, is a picture of Christ. Because there, all those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, were killed. The innocent animal dying uh, in the place of the sinful human being, the sinful nation. And that is a picture throughout the Old Testament. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in the New Testament... Uh, the Lord Jesus is often called the Lamb of God. The Lamb was one of the main animals that was sacrificed morning and evening uh, at the tabernacle. And Christ is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. The Lamb slain uh, before the foundation of the world, uh, says the scripture uh, in uh, the book of Revelation. So the altar represents Christ's atoning work where he died for our sins and bore our sins in his own body on the cross. The tabernacle represents the fact that Christ laid down his life for those he had come to save. He laid down his life for those whom God had given him before the foundation of the world. God made him, uh, we read in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him to be sin for us. There on the cross, God made him to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what happens to everyone who puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He therefore is represented by the altar of burnt offering. But then as you go further into the courtyard, you come to what was called the laver, a great, great a large bowl um, uh, where the 
priests would wash, where the priests would wash themselves and their clothes, um, and certainly they would wash parts of the sacrifices before they went onto the altar. And that laver, that wash place, that wash bowl, is also a picture of Christ. Uh, because in, um, in Hebrews 9 and verse 14, uh, we read this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ cleanses. He not only dies for our sin that we might be forgiven, taking our guilt upon himself, giving us his righteousness, but he cleanses our consciences, our hearts, our minds, cleans them up. And uh, that is a wonderful thing, one of the great experiences of the Christian life, to have a conscience that is clean because our sins are forgiven. Well, then what happens? We come to the actual tent, the outer tent, which was called the holy place. Now we're coming into a tent, which is covered. And as we go into that tent, we see two pieces of furniture, or three pieces of furniture. First of all, there was the menorah, the seven-branch lampstand which is still used by Israel as a symbol uh, of their nation. And then there was the table of showbread. There was a table on the other side where bread, fresh bread, was prepared every day before God. Uh, now that bread was eaten by the priests. But, but, but why did they have it? Why was it there? And then thirdly, there was the altar of incense, right ahead of you, before the second curtain. And that was a place where <clears throat> the priests would offer incense. Now, all those three pieces of furniture represent Christ. The Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The only, only source of light in the holy place was the Seven branch lampstand. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What about the table of showbread? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, he that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that drinks of me shall never thirst. Talking about the gift of eternal life. I am the bread of life, he said. Eat me and you'll never die. And then the small altar of incense. Uh, it is a picture of prayer. And when we pray to God the Father, we pray, you may have noticed in our prayers, in the name of Jesus Christ. Because our access to God is through Jesus Christ. And that is 
a, a, a wonderful reality. That when we trust in Christ, we have access, a way in to the holy God whom no man has ever seen or could see, who dwells in unapproachable light. But through Christ, we can come into his presence. A new and living way has been opened, says Hebrews, into the very presence of God. And that new and living way is Christ. But now we've, we've come to a second curtain. We've come through the holy place where the priests would work, minister, look after the lampstand, look after the uh, showbread, offer the incense. And we come to the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And the priests weren't allowed to go in there. Only the high priest could go in there, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement, to sprinkle blood, the blood of the sacrifice, on the mercy seat. Because the only thing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was, it was a box, basically. If you took this pulpit and laid it on its side or on its front, um, you would have a box which was virtually the same size as the Ark of the Covenant. And then the back would be open, or the top would be open. And on that top there was a lid of solid gold, which was called the mercy seat. And on that lid, at each end, were, uh, were, were two cherubim, one cherubim at each end, of course. And their wings... They were, they were molded in gold, I believe, from a single piece of gold, the whole thing, the mercy seat and the cherubims, and they had wings that touched above the mercy seat. And there, between the cherubims, when the tabernacle was in use, dwelt what was called the Shekinah glory. It was a visible glory. And the reason people weren't allowed in to the Holy of Holies was that, that nobody could look at that glory. It was too bright, too great, too wonderful, too holy, too fearful. And when the high priest went in each year, he went in with a sensor that sent smoke all through the Holy of Holies so that he himself was not blinded by the glory and that glory, well, it wasn't God. Some people thought it was God, but of course it wasn't God. It was simply a representation of two things, the glory of God and the presence of God among his people. And that is a picture of Christ. The whole ark, uh, we are told uh, that we are told that for believers, God has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, that, is, that is what we see when we look upon Christ. We see the glory of God. John says in his first chapter of the gospel that we beheld his glory, Christ's glory, 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, that full of grace and truth. Christ reveals to us the glory of God. It's revealed in his face. That means his person. This was the destination that David sought. It was the destination we should all seek. That the truth of God, the word of God, and the spirit of God should lead us and bring us into the presence of the living Christ, represented in those days by the tabernacle. Everything in that tabernacle spoke of Christ. That was the destination. And so we come uh, to uh, a final point very quickly, and that is David's possession. <clears throat> Let's read here what he says. Then let me bring, send out light and truth, let me bring them to your holy hill, and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God my God. What was David's possession? God. And not, not in the sense that, that those who believe in, in, in Christ own God. Not in that sense. But they have God. Oh God, he could have left it there. But he said, oh God, my God. Uh, he, he speaks of his possession of God. That was the the ultimate desire, the ultimate object of his spiritual pilgrimage, and it ought to be ours, that we might know God. We might know God through Jesus Christ. And we might be able to say, we possess God. He belongs to us and we belong to him. And that results in Three things. First of all, it results in joy. I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you, O God, my God. So it brings joy to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds. In the midst of bad experiences, it brings joy. I, I really must quote uh, uh, just at the end of the prophecy of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had um, been prophesying terrible times coming upon Israel because of their, their unbelief, their disobedience to God. The uh, Babylonians were, were coming and they were going to do terrible things to Israel. But uh, Habakkuk, having prophesied that this was going to happen, as it did, of course, uh, says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's feet. And he makes me tread on high places. In spite of everything, Habakkuk could proclaim that his great joy was God. In the midst of all this destruction or coming destruction, all this disobedience by the nation, he could rejoice in God. And so can we, if we follow the pathway that is laid out for us in Psalm 43. But not only do we have joy as we possess God, we not only have uh, joy, we have hope. Verse 5. Hope in God. For I shall yet again, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David was in exile, but he had a clear hope of being restored. I shall yet do, the, do this. I shall yet be able to go on a physical pilgrimage because I hope in God. And we have hope in God. We have in Christ the hope of eternal life. We have in Christ the hope of the presence of Christ with us throughout life. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he has said. And then finally, of course, the very last line, God is my salvation. Possessing God, we possess salvation. Eternal life. An eternity of glory. Man has not seen, and neither has entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Are you on that journey? Are you following in the footsteps of Psalm 43? I trust that you are.